that was a perfect setup for the sermon. I almost don't need to preach it because you just did. It was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and you'll see how appropriate that was as we turn to Ephesians. And, but I just want to um, say what a privilege it is to live in Wyoming because last Monday I went down to Glendo and I saw that eclipse. Any of you see it? Oh, my. Oh, my. Wasn't it beautiful? It was fantastic. I was there in, in just a perfect spot. And um, one of the people I was with was sort of an amateur um, uh, astronomer, had a nice big telescope. And when you look at the, the expanse of sky, and, and I said, you should never have an eclipse. It's, it's, there's too much space out there for these two, uh, the sun and, and the moon to come between. It, it should never happen. And uh, she then said, she said, well, do you know that's one of the arguments for intelligent design? Because it shouldn't happen. You know, it, it's, it's like God did it on purpose. He just said, oh, I think I'll give you a little taste of what glory looks like. You only get three minutes, but uh, I'm going to show you. And it, it was funny, as, as we watched it, um, everyone was screaming. And I was with only a small group, three vanfuls of people. And everyone was you're going, oh, Ah, I, it was just so beautiful. And to think, pass through this whole state, it was, we were privileged. And by the way, all of Colorado came up here to, to watch it. <laughs> we all had to come to, to Wyoming, but what a, what a treat that was to see the, the beauty of, of God's creation right in front of our eyes like that. Well, there's another beauty. One of the greatest beauties God has ever given us is his word. Um, they say that there are only two things in all this world that are eternal. Number one is the Word of God. The other is human beings. So it seems if those are the two things that are eternal, that's where we ought to focus our attention as people. The Word of God and people. Because we will last forever. And this letter that we've been going through, and we'll finish today, this is the last portion in chapter 6, We've titled it, Us in Him in Us. And that's not just a play on words. It's actually the theme of the book of Ephesians. Very seldom in the Bible are we called Christians. What we're called is people who are in Christ. And what that means is that um, when Christ died on the cross, the Bible says he took our sins. Our sins were on him, we were in Christ. And when he rose from the dead, defeating death, we were in Christ. And with the, the, the inheritance that is Jesus, is we're in Christ. And so the first thing the Apostle Paul tries to tell the Ephesian believers to whom this was written is, you have tremendous assets, resources, riches, privileges, because you're in Christ and he tries to communicate that message, first of all, in the first three chapters. And then in chapter 4, it switches. It switches now to what it means for Christ to be in us. Because now Christ is in us, we behave differently. Because God, by definition, is love. And we are to imitate God. So we're people of love. God, The Bible says God is light. And so we're to be people who walk in the light. God is wisdom. And so we're people to, our, to live wisely with our time. That's what it says. And so the first half tells us all of our riches. And then the second half of the book tells us in light of our riches... What are our responsibilities? And so today we've come to the end of that, the last part, which is um, something that's not a topic we would rather like to talk about, but Galen made reference to it so clearly. 
In addition to the fact that we are God's children and we're children of light and we're children of God's love and we're, we're members of one body, all these wonderful things, something we would probably not like to know, but it's very clear in the Bible, we are soldiers in a battle. Now, the Christian life is not all peace, love, joy, hope, and all these good things. It's also a battle. And today, we're going to look at the text of Scripture, which is the best known in all the Bible on what we call spiritual warfare. And so if you have a Bible, would you open it to chapter 6? And we're going to address this subject today on spiritual warfare. Here's what a commentator wrote. Throughout history, nearly all cultures have believed in the demonic. And apart from the Western world, that's us, they still do. But just when we, the Western world, thought belief in demons would go away, it has come back with force. We almost need the demonic to explain the extent of evil in our world. I mean, if you um, can live in a Pollyanna world and you think all is wonderful and sweet, you've never turned on your television set and the nightly news. And as, again, Galen said, we're in a time of a great tension in our nation, in our world. We have terrorist groups doing unspeakable evil to women, to children, cutting off heads and limbs and things that are not even humane in any sense. They're just flat-out evil. Where does this come from? Where does someone come up with the idea that in the name of God, you can steal airplanes, fly them into buildings, and kill 3,000 people? I mean, and then think this is God? Well, this is demonic. Where does evil of this extent come from? Well, the Bible tells us. There is a war raging around us, and we are soldiers in this war. And the purpose of our text today is to try to teach us how do we fight this battle well. And so this text will tell us how. The question that we'll ask and hopefully try to answer is, are you ready for the battle? And to be ready for the battle, you have to know something about what the battle's like. We have to arm ourselves in armor that will enable us to fight the battle successfully. And uh, the beauty is, the truth is, the battle has already been won. It's won by Jesus about 2,000 years ago on the cross and when he rose from the dead. And we'll turn to that as well. So let's begin with the enemy. The first thing uh, that the Bible is going to talk to us about in light of this spiritual war we're in is who is the enemy and what is the enemy like? And so here's how it begins. Finally. Finally, Paul has gotten to the end of his letter. And so he begins it with finally. As we often do as we write letters or write some kind of a book, we have some indication that the end is about to come. And this is the last subject the Apostle Paul is going to address, spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, actually, those words are far more important than you might think they are. Please pay very close attention. This is really the essence of the sermon. It doesn't say, pull up your bootstraps, get in there, and fight your socks off. If you do, you're dead. 
Did you notice the words? The words, be strong, two things. One, it's in the present tense, which means it's something that has to constantly take place. But it doesn't say, strengthen yourself. It says, be strong. Be strong means that it's, it's a passive verb, which means our response is not an active response. Our response is a passive response. When you fight spiritual evil, you do not go on the offense, you go on the defense. Four times in this passage, it's going to use the word stand or withstand. Um, you, you, you know sports. You know football. And Sheridan, I heard you won by a big number last, uh, this weekend. Um, um, I'm a big Green, Packer, Green Bay Packer fan because I'm from Wisconsin. But as you know, a couple years ago, um, the, the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. Remember that one? Some of you must be Bronco fans here. Anyone? No? Oh, we got a couple here. Well, how did they win that game? Remember? Who got the MVP award? Defense. Remember, championships are won with defense. Von Miller got the MVP award, the defensive linebacker. And it's the same in sports as it is in the spiritual life. The battle is won by defense, not offense. You see, the spiritual battle we fight has already been won by Jesus. When he died on the cross, he took all of our sin in his body on the cross of Calvary. When he walked out of that grave, he defeated death for all time and eternity. That battle has been fought. But that doesn't mean the, 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 the skirmishes are over. Even after world wars have been fought, still after the peace treaties have been signed, there's still skirmishes that take place in almost every war. So it is with the spiritual warfare. So the essence of the spiritual battle is we don't fight the spiritual battle. We are to be strong in the one who fights it for us. Who is that? The Lord and his mighty power. So the first thing we need to know is when we fight the spiritual battle, we don't do it in our own strength. If we do, we will lose. Sometimes I, I watch TV and cringe because you see Christian people say, okay, and they rile up the whole congregation. Let's go out there and fight the devil. I go, don't do that. You will lose. We don't go out and fight the devil. Jesus has fought the devil. We stand. We stand behind the Lord Jesus Christ and we put on the full armor of God which is about to be enumerated for us so that we can take our stand against the schemes of the devil. Now we know some of the schemes of the devil. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that the devil is an exquisite tempter and the main thing he will try to do is to demean the character of God. Do you mean that God is such an ogre? He won't let you eat of that really pretty tree? He's demeaning the character of God. That's one of the main things he does. From the book of Job, we, we learn that Satan is an accuser. And we find that throughout the scriptures. His main job is he said, Did you see Tom? He's a pastor. He did that again. <laughs> Why would you have anything Jesus to do with that guy? Well, accuser. And then in front of that steps Jesus, and I hide behind Jesus because the Bible says we're clothed in 
Not my righteousness, but his righteousness. We stand behind the righteousness of Jesus, not our own. Satan is an accuser. The Bible tells us that Satan is a liar. He counterfeits almost everything of God. And so what we need to look out for if we are Christians is not the absolute twist from right to wrong, but the slight twist of truth. That's where Satan has its specialty. We can easily cite the opposite of God's way, but it's the little twists that we don't often see. Those are the schemes of the evil one. He's a liar. He's a counterfeiter. He's a murderer, Jesus told us. He, he, he well, he, he rolls around as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a lion, as we're going to see in a minute. Now, this is something I took off the Internet. It says, put on the whole armor of God. It's real cute. You find that in, in Sunday school classes, and it's cute. And uh, the problem with the cuteness of this is it's too cute. It's a little too cute. We don't go into the spiritual warfare just kind of as a little game because it's not a game. It's tough stuff. It's the kind of stuff that makes you cry, not smile. And so if you seek a religion to make you comfortable, and despite all its focus on peace and benefit, Christianity is not it. A battle is going on, and contrary to our deception, we do not live on neutral turf. We either live for God or against Him, as Leon Morris points out. You can drift into sin, but you can't drift into righteousness. You see, our default mode as human beings is we kind of drift into sin, but you don't become a faithful follower of Jesus just by drifting through life. It requires arming yourself. It requires choices that we make. And so we'll now see the choices God wants us to make. For our struggle, this battle is not against flesh and blood. What we like to do as Christians when we see things fall apart in our country or in our world is we like to say, well, it's him or her. And God says, oh, no, it's not. It's not primarily any person, him or her. It's primarily a spiritual battle. So when we look for the great enemies, don't point at people because they are not the great enemy. They are simply pawns in the hands of rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, the truth of God's word is that there is a spiritual world that we do not typically see. I've told you before, I lived in Africa for three years, and, and Galen reminded us that Heather just took off to go back to a very tough part of Africa in West Africa. I remember talking to the African people about spiritual matters, and they said, they asked me the question, they said, we've heard that Americans don't believe in spirits. And I said, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they laugh and said, they're stupid. <laughs> they said, they're stupid. They said, there's not an African that doesn't know about the reality of the spirit world. They know it very well. And they're just absolutely thrilled to know there's a good spirit, a holy spirit. Because they know spirits. They know evil. But they're so glad to know that there's a God who's completely good now, you see, in the spirit world, there are God, who is, of course, eternal, and then there are created angels. 
You see, these powers dark, uh, of the dark world, spiritual forces, these are angelic beings. That means they are created, but they're on the evil side. We don't know what happened. The Bible gives us some brief hints that at some point there was an angelic rebellion against God. So the angels at some time must have had free will. But they rebelled against God, some of them, about a third of them, and they then have been locked into their evil, and their commander is Lucifer, the angel of light, or Satan. And so they do whatever they can to sow discord. On the other hand are the majority of the angels who are faithful servants of God who can do nothing but do as God bids for our good. And so there are spiritual evils. We don't know a lot about it. There's very little about the spiritual world in the Old Testament. We find glimpses of it in the book of Daniel. We find much more of it during the time of the Gospels when Jesus was here on earth and when the apostles and people like the Apostle Paul speak about it. And there's some about it in the book of Revelation, but not a lot. But there is a heavenly realm of cosmic warfare that we do not see, but it has significant impact on the world in which we live. Therefore, since there is a war raging, and we are the prime targets of this war, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you are the prime target of a massively powerful terrorist organization that is stalking you and wants to accuse you before God, wants to tempt you to do wrong, and me, that's the reality of life. And so we are called by God to arm ourselves with the full armor of God. So when the evil comes, we may be able to, again, stand our ground, and after we have done everything to stand. The key to fighting the spiritual battle is to stand. It's not to advance. Jesus has done the advancing. We stand. I think I might have mentioned to you before, I, when I was in high school, I played football, and we had a very good team. One of the games we were playing against Northwestern Military Academy, and uh, we were way ahead at halftime, I think 40-something to nothing. And uh, so the game was decided, and so all the first string was put on the bench, and all the second and third string played the, the remainder of the game. I don't know what the coach of the other team did, but I do know what happened on the field. When they would tackle one of us, they, would, um, they were punching, gouging eyes, biting. They were doing all kinds of evil things under the pile under the, when we were tackled. And uh, I suspect the coach said, guys, we can't win this game, but we can hurt them. Let's, under those piles, bite, kick, punch, poke, do whatever you can to hurt them, just to know that when they come into our home field, they go away hurt. Well, that's what Satan's like. Satan cannot possibly win the battle. It was already won 2,000 years ago at the cross. However, that doesn't mean Satan's going to roll over and play dead. He's now going to play dirty. That's what he does now. And that's why the New Testament is much, has much more to say about Satan than the Old Testament, because now he's playing dirty because he's furiously angry. And who is he angry at? God. He can't do anything to God except through us. So we're the targets. And so he's going to play dirty with us. And so God says, you're the targets. Now I want you to arm yourself 
And you don't think you have to go into this battle leading an offense against Satan. I will do that. You need to stand behind me. Now, by the way, so many times people get this wrong. And please don't do this at First Baptist. Some will say, well, Satan tempted me. No, he didn't. It's not possible. Satan is not God. Satan is not omnipresent. There is only one Satan. We know where Satan was when Adam and Eve were on this, uh, on this, um, on this planet tempting them. We know where Satan was when Jesus was on this planet tempting Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, I have been tormented by Satan. Satan is active doing his dirty work with somebody, but I doubt it's any of us at First Baptist. We are, it's not Satan, it's his minions, the evil ones who tempt us. And Satan may be the accuser of us, but he's not the one doing it. So now our task is to stand in the armor of God. Be self-controlled. This is, first, this is Peter writing. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. How? Standing. Again, see the word? It keeps coming. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So we all, all of us in Christi as Christians are in the same battle. We need each other. But our dog job is to link arms and we stand together. Well, the Bible says we're to stand with God's armor that he provides. Now, this is a picture of a, of a typical Roman soldier. It's pretty, it's about half accurate, not quite right. The helmet would have looked like that somewhere where the, the head, the most important part of a body is, is protected. And they often put plumes on their helmets, the Roman soldiers did, so it looked somewhat like that. Of course, they wore metal shield over their, their, their um, front, their chest, and their back to guard the vital organs of the heart and the lungs. They wore a big leather belt, that, not like my skinny belt here, but much wider to protect your guts here. Then they wore hobnailed shoes which had little spikes like football spikes so they could grip the turf. And again, two stand, hold their ground. They carried a, a shield, which was much bigger than this, about four feet by about two and a half feet, something like that, a pretty big shield to protect them. And that shield was usually made out of leather dipped in water so that when fiery darts hit it, they would not um, uh, start it on fire. And the sword was not a long sword like this. It was a little tiny sword which was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's the word that's used here in the text of Scripture. So these are the items that they used. A helmet to protect the head. Of course, a breastplate to protect the lungs and the heart. Something to protect uh, the mid part. Feet were, um, had sandals so they could both move as well as hold their ground. A shield and a sword. Now, how does Paul know about this stuff? Remember where he is when he writes this? He's in prison. Where? In Rome. Do you know what he might be doing at this very moment when he's writing? He's chained to a Roman soldier. <laughs> so he's chained to this guy, maybe by his leg, and he's looking over and saying, oh, that helmet, I, yeah, helmet, I know about that. And he's looking, so okay. But 
Paul not only knows Roman soldiers, there's something else he knows extremely well. And this you would not pick up, but you must because it's the key to the passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is a Jewish rabbi. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures extremely well. And every item of this, of this um, armor here is taken directly from the book of Isaiah with reference to the Messiah. Paul didn't just pick this stuff out of the sky. It's very, very deliberate. So Isaiah wrote 700 years before the time of Jesus, and he wrote, one day the Messiah is going to come with a helmet of salvation. And he's going to come with a breastplate of righteousness and his feet are going to be shod with the gospel. Every item here is going to be referring from Isaiah to the Messiah who now Paul knows is Jesus. Now this is where people have made a huge mistake here in this. They say, okay, if you want to fight the spiritual battle, put on that belt of truth and you people better be sure. No lies. Don't tell lies. Be sure you tell the truth. <laughs> nice, don't tell lies, please. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus who said, I am the truth. You, remember, we don't fight the battle. We stand behind Jesus who has fought the battle. He is the truth. He is the good news. He is our righteousness. Here's, here's 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's his righteousness. It's his gospel. It's his faithfulness that is our armor. So let's look at the armor quickly. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. That's the place he starts. He starts with the fact of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And Jesus um, constantly spoke of himself as, as, as the truth of God and, and admonishes us, as the whole Bible does, to tell the truth. So that which protects our guts, our midpart, is Jesus, our truth, and our truthfulness, the breastplate. What guards our heart and our lungs, the vital organs of our body? Well, righteousness. Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Our righteousness? So you're going to fight the spiritual battle with your righteousness or mine? I want to say good luck, Turkey. You are not getting very far. We cannot possibly win any spiritual battle because we don't know how formidable our foe is. We don't fight with our righteousness. We claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is His righteousness that takes the offensive. We stand behind the righteousness of Jesus, our feet. Our feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel, the good news of peace. When Jesus was first introduced to this world after he was born by the angels, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. Uh, this day unto you has been born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. He is 
our peace. And, and it says in Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. And Jesus says, here I am. Here I am. And, and uh, the, the genius of the, um, of the shoes that the Roman soldiers used were they had open toes, knobs on the bottom, so they could both grip the ground to fight and stand, but also they could move quickly because um, of the way the shoes were designed. And that's both the readiness and the standing here. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. I said in the first service, I'll repeat again, this was um, a a well-known Christian psychologist who said this. He said, if you listen to yourself and don't talk to yourself, you're in deep trouble. One of the most important things Christians can ever learn to do is to talk to ourselves. And one of the worst things we can ever do is to listen to ourselves. Now, we live in a society in which we're told over and over again is listen to your heart, follow your heart. And I'm telling you, that's a bad place to go because if your heart's like mine, I don't want to listen to it too often. This is what my heart tells me. Hey, you failed again. What an idiot you are. Oh, you're a pastor, huh? You're a hypocrite. Oh, you think you're godly. You're not. You're a horrible sinner. Oh, you failed again, did you? You see, we're constantly telling ourselves those messages all the time. And if you listen to yourself, you'll be in trouble. We're supposed to talk to ourselves. God said, I am made in the image of God. We sang a song this morning in our worship about we're made for more than this. We're made in the image of God. Do you know that God died for me and for you? That's pretty good. You say, oh, I'm, I'm not much. I'm not worth anything. What? That God would die for you and you think you're not worth anything? How much are you worth? Infinite. You're infinitely valuable. Oh, I'm, I have no gifts. I'm, God never gave me anything. What? God said that the Holy Spirit has given every one of us invaluable gifts that the body of Christ desperately needs. Every one of us. See, we need to talk to ourselves because these accusations, these messages that we have inside of ourselves telling us lies all the time need to be stopped. By what? Our faith in the Word of God, which is true. We need to tell ourselves what God says is true because with that, we can extinguish all of the fiery darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. Ah, that which guards our, our brain. The most important organ of our life, of our body, is the salvation that has been given to us by grace through faith alone. And that is a great guardian. Because most of our world, all most of our religious world thinks deeply that we have to make ourselves acceptable to God. We have to work our way into God's righteousness. And remember, we are Protestants. 
Our great mantra from Martin Luther is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. That's who we are. That's the gospel. And that is our, our helmet that we wear. And what a guard that is. We can live as people of peace, who have inner peace, because our salvation is not dependent on us. Our salvation is given to us that we access by faith in the one who procured it, namely Jesus and the sword of the Spirit. And remember, this is a little sword. It's not a big one that we go out and fight with. It's a little one that we, we hold, which is the Word of God. That's our armor. Here's just a, a picture, probably a more accurate one, a small sword and a big shield like that. That's what God says to arm ourselves. And I put the soldier, I didn't, I stole this from the, email, from the internet, the soldier in front of the cross. Because essentially what the armor of God is, it's Christ and his work for us as applied to our lives by God's Holy Spirit. That's the armor of God. Again, it's like our theme. Christ, us in him, him in us. That's what it means to fight. Well, we're in a war. How do you fight the war? Well, it says, first of all, you arm yourself. And then, as you know, any of you, and we have a lot of you that have served in the military, one of the most important lessons they'll ever teach you in the military, even before how to use your weapon, is you've got to listen to your commanding officer. You must be submissive to orders, and you must keep the lines of communication open. And how we do that as Christians is through prayer. So prayer is our primary means of waging the war. Again, that's why I get what Galen pointed out. It's, it's prayer. This is how, because it is through prayer that we keep the lines open. He says, and pray in the Spirit when? On all occasions. How? With all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And how often should you do this? Always. For whom? Everybody. Now, to pull that off, how do you do it? Do you have a 30-minute prayer meeting once a week? Or even a seven minutes with God devotion? Now, those things aren't bad, but that's not going to cut it. That is not going to answer this. All occasions, all kinds, all ways, and all the saints. How do you do that? Well, I know how. It's kind of like Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. Hey, he's pushing his little card. You could have made me rich, you know? Why did I have to live in this poverty when you got all, you own everything? You could, you could have made me rich. Okay, I understand. You don't want me to be rich. I think the key is we talk to God all the time. I mentioned the eclipse. I say, um, the, this astronomer that I was with, <laughs> she is, when the, when the eclipse was at its full thing, she is photographing or videoing all of us. It was the best part. No, the best part was seeing the glory of God, but you can't believe our reaction. Just spontaneously, people going, whoa! You look, at, look at that! Can you believe? Look at that halo! It's beautiful! It's beautiful! What are we doing? Well, here's an event in life. Then we go, oh, it's beautiful. Why don't we do that all the time? 
I, I, I don't do this as much as I should, but really what prayer is all about and what being fighting the spiritual warfare is all about is we talk to God all the time. We bring him into everything. Say, oh, God, it's pretty hot in here today. The air conditioning isn't working again, but next week when it comes on again and we're cool during our worship service, not that we, how many of us are going to go, God, oh, walk into that worship center. Oh, it's cool. Thank you. Well, he, all of life, all of life we communicate with him. That's how soldiers operate. They constantly communicate with their commanding officer and with each other. And then Paul says, um, pray for me. Now, if I were Paul, I'd say, hey, pray for me that, I'm, that I'll bust these chains and get out of here. That's not what he says. He says, you know, I'm, I'm linked to a Roman soldier, and I'm a little bit afraid. And I might be facing death, and I'm afraid. So this is what I want you to pray for me. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So that, it, that means that Paul was afraid just like we are. Oh, pray for me. I'm a soldier, but I'm, I'm afraid. And so are we. So we pray for each other. Well, the text of Scripture ends with Paul identifying one of his comrades in arms named Tychicus. And Tychicus is the letter carrier. He's the one who's going to carry this letter from Paul in Rome to the church in Ephesus. Tychicus, our dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. So that's Paul's delegate to the church. And this is how he ends. Peace to the brothers. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And that's the end. And so what? So what do we gain from this text of Scripture on spiritual warfare? May I suggest four things quickly. Number one. Spiritual warfare is real. When you became a Christian, you might not have been told, but you became a target, as did I. And so when temptation comes and trials come into our lives, Paul said to us, don't consider that an enemy. Those are normal parts. Or this is James that said this, Jesus' half-brother. Trials are not an anomaly. That's part of life. Why? Because spiritual warfare is real. That's the place to start. Here's C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, which is very common in our world. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are they. This is the, the devils. Devils are equally pleased with both errors. And they hail a materialist, that is one who doesn't believe in the devil, as much as a magician who believes overmuch in them. Actually, the Bible does not say a lot about spiritual warfare. It addresses it in both Old and New Testaments, mostly in the New. It does not say a lot. And one of the most difficult things for anyone to do as a Christian is to keep the proper balance. What we tend to do is to discount 
the, the evil one altogether or to give too much credit to them. And that is a great problem in our world today. It's like everything we say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he did not. The devil did not make Adam and Eve do it. They sinned because they chose to follow the devil. No, the devil did not make us do it. When you try to find a devil under every rock, you have clearly missed the balance of the word of God. And when you focus on the devils, you usually lose because our focus should not be on the devil. Our focus is on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our focus. Spiritual warfare must not be feared. Why? Because Jesus already won. We must not fear spiritual warfare, but don't focus on it ex excessively either. Again, it's a balance we must keep. We must know who our enemy is and isn't. People are not our enemy. There's no one who, who do doesn't hold anything Christian. That's not our enemy. We don't fight people. Our enemy is spiritual forces that are against God and what he does, not people. And then we end with Martin Luther. You may not know, but this year, in just about a month now, is 500 years exactly from when one brave man posted on the door of the church 95 theses or debate points. He saw 95 things in the Roman Catholic Church of his day, and he's a Roman Catholic priest, that he thought were dead wrong. And he wanted to debate these and have them corrected. Well, you know what happened. They kicked him out. And at his trial, so to speak, he uttered these incredible words. Here's what he said. Unless I am convinced by proofs from the scriptures or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, with one word, we will stand. And that word is Jesus. Let's stand.